This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Tuesday morning show for you today, including the BC Nurses Union opposed to mandatory vaccinations for nurses now. This was part of the big news yesterday as the B.C. government announced mandatory vaccinations for healthcare workers, including nurses. The Nurses Union does not like it. Uh, they say that will force unvaccinated nurses off the job at a time when there's a nursing shortage and massive pressures on the healthcare system. And we'll talk about that on the show today. I'll speak to the Hospital Employees Union on the show. Hospital workers also facing mandatory vaccination. We asked for the Nurses Union to come on today. They're not available. Uh, they did issue a statement, though, uh, saying they're opposed to this mandatory vaccination for their members. Wow. Uh, that's an interesting showdown here be, uh, between this very powerful union and the government. So we'll break that down for you on the show today. We got all that and lots more, but we start today with the crime, the vandalism, the assaults and violence, and the general mayhem we're seeing on the streets of Vancouver. We talked about this on the show today. Man, we had a ton of phone calls on the open line from people who are saying this is the worst they've ever seen it. Uh, some of the mayhem seems to be spreading into previously peaceful neighborhoods. Uh, they're seeing a lot of problems out there. Uh, the police have got their hands full here. They had a wild weekend in the city of Vancouver. Let's talk about that now with my guest, Sergeant Steve Addison, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Sergeant Addison, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let, let's talk about what happened on the weekend, and it sounds like your people were run off their feet here. I, I was just astonished by the release that you put out describing some of the mayhem that was going on in Vancouver. It seemed to start, what, Friday night and just went all weekend? Yeah, it really did. You, you described it as a wild weekend. It certainly was. And, and unfortunately, um, weekends like this are, are becoming more the norm rather than the exception uh, as of late. Uh, this past weekend was particularly bad. Uh, not only were we uh, had not only did we have uh, more than 30 officers who were assigned to a, a very violent sexual assault case, which I can talk to you a little bit more yes. about if you'd like. Yes. Um, but as we were investigating that, our officers responded to a series of uh, shootings, uh, stabbings throughout the downtown east side and the downtown core. Um, this is on top of all of a number of other issues and, and uh, incidents that we're regularly responding to, things like missing yeah. persons cases and assaults and domestic assaults, uh, protests and a variety of other cases. So we really were stretched uh, thin over the, the past weekend with all of these uh, serious, uh, serious incidents. Yeah, a 26-year-old man stabbed near Pigeon Park for the second day in a row. This same guy stabbed two days in a row. Friday night, you had a woman show up at the police station at Maine and East Cordova. She'd been stabbed multiple times, and police followed a blood trail for a block, trying to find the assailant. There is that still under investigation, or did you find the did you find the person in that yeah, one? The, these incidents are all still under investigation. You referenced a 26 year old man who was stabbed for two, uh, two days in a row. We we went and saw him. Uh, 
in East Vancouver on Thursday after he'd been stabbed. Uh, we don't know yet who stabbed him. He was taken to hospital. He was treated. And upon his release, uh, within hours, he had been stabbed again. And uh, our officers found him uh, seriously injured with a, a lacerated kidney and internal bleeding lying on the sidewalk near uh, Pigeon Park in the downtown east side. Hours after that, a woman walked up to the, the police station at Main Street and Cordova. She had been stabbed in a lane nearby. Our officers followed a trail of blood for more than a block. Um, we believe that she had uh, encountered a man and a woman she quite likely knew, and the, the man and the woman lured her into a lane, at which time they uh, they assaulted her and stabbed her. She received very serious injuries. Uh, we had wow. a, 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 two other people stabbed at a single-room occupancy building on, the, on Hastings Street, Gunshots fired in that building as well. It really was a, a very chaotic weekend, and we were stretched yeah. uh, quite thin dealing with all these these cases. Yeah, no, it sounds absolutely wild. On yesterday's show, I spoke to John Clarides. He's the owner of the Marquee Wine Cellars on Davie Street. Uh, his place broken into again. This got a lot of attention on social media from some of the photos that went online. Uh, the front windows just smashed, and the place ransacked. I'll have a listen to what he had to say here yesterday, Steve, and I'll get your thoughts. Here's John Clarides. Across the street from me, there's a bath of optical at 1033 Davy. There, one of their windows is broken. Uh, two doors up from me, uh, there's the sun tanning place. Their front glass is broken. And half a block up the street, uh, there's a restaurant called Faux, Faux Noodle House. Their front oh, window yeah. is broken. And I was talking to the Business Improvement Association. There's been about six or seven windows in the last month. This is the second time my window has been broken this year. Okay, so that's in the the West End, which uh, you know, mm-hmm. been normally a fairly, I guess, m- much more relatively more peaceful p- neighborhood. But a lot of people yeah. saying, "What do you think about that?" I mean, it just seems like it's worse than ever. Well, it's these are the kinds of stories that we are uh, hearing over and over again from businesses and residents all over this all over the city. Uh, the downtown core, the West End, has been hit particularly hard. For all of these incidents that get reported to the police, we also know that there's also a significant number that haven't been reported to the police. We are hearing every day from uh, business owners who have been dealing with violent shoplifters or uh, vandalism, broken windows, graffiti, who are choosing not to report these incidents to the police for whatever reason. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's really, it's really important for us to get the message out to uh, anybody who sees crime, that they need to report it to us. We need to know when this is happening so that we can properly respond, so we can properly investigate, and so that we can properly allocate resources to these neighbourhoods that are dealing with uh, it, with with an uptick in, in crime like this. Yeah, I was talking to Sergeant Steve Addison from the VPD. Uh, Steve, let me ask you now about this uh, shocking sexual assault on a 76-year-old woman in a wheelchair, leaving her with life-threatening injuries. This is this is a, a crime that has just shocked the city, and I know you're throwing a lot of resources at it. Can, can you tell us, I know you can't speak in great detail about, about it precisely, but what, what happened here? Can you explain what went down here? Sure. So this is, you're right, this is a very serious and it's a very sensitive investigation, so I can't speak in great detail, but what I can tell you is that we became aware last week that uh, a, um, a vulnerable 76-year-old woman who is uh, confined to a wheelchair was uh, violently sexually assaulted somewhere in Vancouver and the injuries that she received as a result of this sex assault are very serious and and we fear that they could be life-threatening. 
we don't know who did this. We don't know who's responsible. And we have dozens of officers who are assigned to the case right now. They're busy collecting evidence, uh, trying to identify a suspect and uh, trying to make headway on the case. And we are making significant progress on the case. Um, it's obviously very shocking. We've had officers who have been working on this case throughout the weekend. Many of, many investigators who, who've gone uh, days without seeing their families uh, because we're trying to make progress on the, this case. Okay. So we're, uh, again, we're, we're obviously very serious. Uh, we're asking anybody, <clears throat> excuse me, anybody who has any information to give us a call uh, because um, it's, it's a priority for us. Okay, so the assailant here is not known to the victim, is that right? Like, she didn't know who this person was? Um, we don't know all the details yet. The victim's injuries are quite serious, and because of the seriousness of the victim's injuries, um, information has been a little bit, uh, details have been a little bit slow in, in coming to us from, from wow. the victim. Um, we don't know what relationship, if any, the victim and the suspect had, and we, and we don't have um, we don't we don't have a uh, a suspect identified yet, so we at the Vancouver Police did issue a warning to the public. Uh, we think it's important for the public to be aware that this incident happened, not only because we want anybody who has any information to come forward uh, and and tell us about it, but also because we have somebody out there in the city at large who we believe has committed a, a violent sexual assault. That person is not in custody, and until we uh, until we arrest that person, until we find out more, we need everybody to be aware that that has happened and to take reasonable steps to protect their own their own safety. Okay, Sergeant Addison, last question for you. When we hear the descriptions of this, like a shocking sexual assault like that, and we hear about the crime and the mayhem that we see spreading in the city, what can you say about what is causing and, and driving this right now? And do the police have adequate resources to stay on top of it? Okay, well, you know, uh, some people would like to say, suggest that this is a, a COVID issue. Uh, it's that, that oversimplifies it. We're dealing with a variety of factors here. It's everything from uh, drug use to mental health to antisocial behavior, criminal behavior and gang behavior. Uh, there's more people out on the street than uh, previously as a result of uh, restrictions uh, uh, being eased. There have been uh, a number of people who have been relocated to buildings in the downtown core from uh, tent cities in Strathcona Park and Oppenheimer Park. All of these things are contributing to uh, the challenges that we're facing, particularly in the downtown core. You ask if police need more resources? Sure. Uh, absolutely. Uh, any, one of the, any one of these incidents that I've just talked about could require dozens of officers uh, from the very beginning to investigate. So a single stabbing in, uh, on Hastings Street in the downtown east side is going to uh, require probably a dozen officers right at the outset. If that happens in the middle of the night and there's another major incident, that leaves us and the city in a, in a very vulnerable position. Sergeant Addison, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike. All right, welcome back. Down to the wire here in the federal election. Election day just six days away now. The polls show a tight race between Liberal leader Justin Trudeau, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, heading into some intense final days of campaigning. Let's check in now with my guest, Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Federal Conservative Party. Thanks again for coming on. It's great to be back with you, Mike. I appreciate you taking the time. You take a look at these opinion polls. One of the, we'll be breaking down some of these polls later on in the show today. But one of the things that's jumping out a lot of people is uh, Maxime Bernier and, and the People's Party uh, rising up to 8%, as high as 8% in some of these polls. Are you worried about this guy stealing uh, conservative support here in the dying days of the campaign? 
No, because there's only one person that can replace Justin Trudeau in this election and bring change to Canada. It's myself and Canada's Conservatives. And so what we're going to do is focus the last six days of this race on our plan, Canada's recovery plan. I've talked uh, about that with you before, Mike. And contrast, Mr. Trudeau is constantly under investigation. He's let people down. We were reminded how he tried to force Jody Wilson-Raybould to lie in the SNC-Lavalin scandal. We have to have better. We have to have change, and that's what we're going to be talking about, a leader that's ready, that's ethical, that will actually deliver, unlike Mr. Trudeau. Okay, but uh, the, the reason I'm asking you about Maxime Bernier, though, is I take your point. Obviously, he cannot become prime minister, but he could prevent you from becoming prime minister if he steals enough votes from you. Right. Well, a lot of people, a lot of people are frustrated, and so what you're seeing is even folks that saw the Green Party uh, imploding. A lot of people are kind of just frustrated and wondering what to do in this election. And so, what I'm going to do is try and give them an offer: let's replace a tired and corrupt Liberal government with a new Conservative government with policies on issues, including on climate change, that we didn't meet the expectations of people last time. I've fixed that. We have a very ambitious platform to get the country back on track. And we're not chasing division. We're not trying to divide the country like Mr. Trudeau and some other voices are. We're actually trying to bring people together to fight COVID, get people back to work, fight right. the cost of living crisis. So that's, that's our vision. And it's, it's resonating well, Mike. And I'm going to work hard for every last minute of this campaign. Okay, I noticed you've sharpened your attacks on Trudeau here in the last few days, and and he's coming right back at you here. Let me play a clip here for you of Justin Trudeau yesterday on the campaign trail going after you here on uh, vaccine mandates, and I'll get your thoughts. Here's Trudeau yesterday. You have to ask yourself, when it is so clear on the science that vaccinations are the way through, when he actually demands that everyone on the tour around him, from media to others need to be fully vaccinated to travel with his leaders tour but he will not ensure that his candidates are fully vaccinated okay what do you say to him he is full of hogwash mike Uh, you know he did an event standing beside a liberal candidate who was not vaccinated this guy says whatever he wants i i've been promoting vaccines for over a year when he was partnering with china on a vaccine They're safe and effective, and I'm encouraging people. My wife and I videoed our vaccination process at the time Mr. Trudeau praised our efforts. Now he's dividing people. He called an election in a pandemic only for him. This election cost $600 Mike. We could build several hospitals for that. So it's been sad to see him kind of mislead people on Twitter, divide people on a weekly basis. He thinks he's running uh, against the Conservative Party in 2015, and, and his, his record back then. His record now is corruption, failure, and I think Canadians deserve better. Okay, you know, you just mentioned that you've been vaccinated, your wife's been vaccinated, you, you trust the science, you believe in the vaccine, and the majority of Canadians agree with you. Why would you not support a vaccine mandate, let's say, on uh, for passengers on uh, airlines? Like, is it just a question of freedom? Like, okay, you trust the science and you're vaccinated, but you're willing to expose yourself to someone sitting next to you on a plane who's unvaccinated because, you know, you got to take one for team freedom, right? No, that's not it at all. We, we what is, have what to, is it then? We have to use education and inform people, not force and coerce. And in fact, if you look at who is vaccine hesitant, Mike, yeah. a lot of them are people of color, people that have had bad experiences with the healthcare system, like indigenous people's. 
So we have to work with them to get that vaccination rate up to 90%. And there's there's some women that are pregnant that have questions. There's a range of things that we have to bring people together here, not turn it into an us versus them as Mr. Trudeau did. In fact, he said the same thing I am saying right now three months ago. But now he's called an election because he's using yeah. the pan- the pandemic. He's using health to divide people. That That's not leadership, Mike. So I've said vaccines are critical. If people have questions, if they if there are concerned, let's deal with those and get people vaccinated and also use the other measures that are there, like rapid testing. He was months after all other countries approving rapid tests. Let's use all measures to keep people safe. That will be right. my approach. Public safety, bringing people together and getting the economy back on track. Speaking to Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, let me see if I can get it straight here on the position on these uh, assault weapons or, or what the Trudeau government has defined as, as assault weapons. When the Trudeau Liberals brought in that order banning like 1,500 of these weapons, I thought you were pretty clear that you were going to repeal that. Let me just go back to a comment that you made to the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights here, which I think you're pretty clear here. Uh, last year, and then I'll get your thoughts. So here is here he is you speaking last year on this point. So look, I'm going to say something uh, that I think your members will understand. I'm going to commit to repealing the Firearms Act and fixing the classification system once and for all by making sure manufacturers, users, and law enforcement are all part of the process of drafting clear, unambiguous, fair, and equitable laws that respect the law-abiding rights of Canadians. Okay, is it still your position you'll repeal the Firearms Act? We're maintaining everything that's in place, in place. You know, all the restrictions, um, including the order in council. And what I have committed to, and what I talk about in that uh, in that clip, yeah. is fixing and depoliticizing the classification system. Because, Mike, even as you say at the top, how the Liberal government has defined things, it shouldn't be politicians defining things when it comes to public safety we should have a fair process that actually makes decisions based on facts not on politics and we have to really tackle the big issue of smuggled firearms from the united states and street gangs the shootings we see in surrey and in montreal in recent days are all being perpetrated by street gangs and criminal organizations that are using illegally obtained uh, uh, weapons from the united states so we have to tackle that issue and that's what I've said. We're, we're going to keep the restrictions in place and try and depoliticize this classification piece. Well, hang on. You're going to keep the restrictions in place. You're going to keep this, this ban on so-called assault weapons in place pending a review, right? So the review, you're not ruling out repealing the ban on these weapons after the review, correct? What I've, what I've said is we're keeping them in place. And then the review of the classification system is meant to take the politics out of it. It should have right. the public at the table, along with hunters and, and, and those sorts of organizations, so that everyone can agree on a system that doesn't divide people. Because people that follow the rules and, and farmers and hunters that, that are screened, that have training, they aren't the public safety risk. The prime minister knows that, Mike, but he's actually okay. using that issue whenever there's a, a tragic shooting or an event, rather than tackle the real issue, which is smuggling that's gone up under his watch. We've seen also the border become uh, 60,000 people just walk across the border, not even following the rules. Let's have a fair and transparent process that focuses on safety. And I'm the parent of 
of, of young kids. I'm a suburban dad. I want safe yeah. communities. I also want to just take the politics out of this. Let me ask you about jobs and the economy in Canada. You've been very critical of the Justin Trudeau government for spending so much money. Here is Trudeau defending himself on that, saying uh, the debt that Canada has racked up is actually sustainable and not that bad. Then I'll get your thoughts. Here's Justin Trudeau on that. We went into this pandemic with one of the best fiscal positions of uh, all our peer countries. And we're still in one of the best fiscal positions, even with all the investments we've made in Canadians partially because of all the investments we've made in Canadians. Okay, so he's basically saying that the debt is sustainable when you compare it to its share of the economy, but you're saying what? They, they spent too much, right? You would cut back. Uh, absolutely, Mike. Mike, he, he's accumulated more debt than all prime ministers in history before him. In fact, he had $100 billion of debt in good economic times before COVID. So we had major problems as an economy before the pandemic hit. Now it's becoming critical. You know why we have inflation? It's because of this out-of-control spending. So for the first time in 40 years, Mike, we have a shrinking economy under Justin Trudeau, rising prices and inflation. And if we see interest rates go up, Mr. Trudeau is setting our country up to fail. So I won't let that happen. That's why we launched Canada's recovery plan. Unlike Mr. Trudeau, I've worked in the private sector. I know how to get people back to work. And I know how to get back to balance over a way that's fair, because as you know, we're going to make some historic investments in healthcare and addiction treatment to fight the opioid crisis. But we also want to get people back to work in all sectors and in all regions. What spending would you cut when you say that Trudeau is spending too much? So what spending programs would you cut? Mr. Trudeau spent hundreds of millions of dollars, Mike, putting 15-year-old students on the CERB. He spent $10 billion dollars having students not work at a time where restaurants, small businesses were dying for people to work so that they could have some traction last summer when there was an opening. He just has kicked the can down the road on the CERB and all other programs. He hasn't adapted them to meet the needs of today. So the tourism sector, the hospitality restaurants in the lower mainland, they're holding on by a thread. So we've got a plan to help them get on their footing, roll down the emergency spending, and then control our finances. Mr. Trudeau was increasing government spending across the board by 6 to 7% per year. No focus. Right. We're going to focus on health care, on mental health and addiction, but on all others, we're going to have a dissident approach over a period of time to get our books right. back into balance because it's a risk now. The inflation is here. Interest rate increases. Mr. Trudeau is putting health care and everything we depend on at risk. Last question for you. Let me ask you about the the promise that you made to give, speaking of restaurants, to give Canadians a 50% rebate on their restaurant bills. So if they go out to a restaurant between Monday and, and Wednesday, uh, the government would pay for half their meal as a way to uh, get the restaurant sector back on their feet. I asked Ian Tostenson about this promise. He's the CEO of the BC Restaurants Association. And he had a, he sort of surprised me with his, his response here. He, he was kind of critical of, of your, your promise here. I thought he would love it, but have a listen to what he said, and then I'll get your thoughts. I don't know. You know, and this is not a political thing. I just think that we could take that billion dollars and invest it differently. I mean, the problems that we have right now are we don't have any staff, so I'm not so sure we need a whole bunch more business. Um, I, I, thought business I thought you would great. love that. I thought you'd be all yeah. over it and say it's great. No, I mean, of course it's great, but I, I, if we have a billion dollars, I think we need to invest in getting a workforce in our restaurants. 
Okay, so he's, he surprised me. I thought he would love this, but he said, like, the biggest problem they got is a lack of staff, and you should be doing more something more about that than cutting people's restaurant bills. But your thoughts? I'm not surprised he's cynical, because th- that industry has been crawl- calling out for a year, Mike, to change the approach to the pandemic response. Mr. Trudeau was giving millions of dollars to large corporations having record profits because he didn't change our programs. The highly affected sectors like hospitality and tourism, they're going to have the slowest recovery of all sectors, yet he hasn't had anything specific for them. So part of the reason we need the CERB and other programs wound down is so that people will work. There are job opportunities. He's right. They can't hire enough people. We're going to help end that, get people working. And the Dine and Discover program is targeted for hospitality and for tourism. We're going to actually incentivize let you save a few bucks in your pocket, yeah. but if you use it, and we, we, we worked with the industry because Monday to Wednesdays tends to be the slower days, so we're going to drive a little extra business to help us save some local businesses. It's about time we had a government that is smart and is proactive as opposed to late and, and lazy, quite frankly, right. with Justin Trudeau. Thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Be well. Okay, thank you. Same to you. Aaron O'Toole there, leader of the Federal Conservative Party. We we have asked multiple times for Justin Trudeau to be a guest on the show. We haven't had any luck. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible, because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about mandatory COVID vaccination now for all BC healthcare workers. The new measure comes into effect October 26. It will apply to everyone working in acute and community care along with people who work in home care as well. Here is Dr. Bonnie Henry making the announcement yesterday. We'll be implementing a new order that makes vaccination against COVID-19 a condition of employment across all healthcare facilities in British Columbia. This includes all people, all workers, students, physicians, residents, contractors and volunteers who work in a healthcare facility, including contracted facilities which are accessible to patients and where they receive services. So it also includes people who work in settings such as home and community care locations, including clients' homes. Making an official mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers in BC. Let's check in now with Mike Old, a spokesperson for the Hospital Employees Union. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Mike. Hey, Mike. Good morning. Thanks. Thanks a lot for coming on. And I'm sure you saw this one coming, a mandatory vaccination for the members of your union. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's not a huge surprise for healthcare workers. They've been signaling uh, since August 12th when they announced that they were going to have a vaccine requirement for 
long-term care and assisted living that they were likely to extend this to the rest of the acute care system. So not a huge surprise. Okay. Are you supportive of it? You know, we've always taken the position that uh, a voluntary uh, program of vaccinating healthcare workers based on good education and access to vaccines is the preferred route. But, uh, you know, obviously the public health officials and Dr. Henry have decided that uh, the risk is high and that this uh, vaccine mandate is a proportional action to the risk out there. So, you know, it's important that healthcare workers recognize that uh, by October 26th, they will be required to be vaccinated. We don't know exactly what that means at this point, but uh, it does mean that if you haven't had a vaccine, you probably need to get your first dose in the next couple of weeks. Okay, so this is not the union's preferred option, but safe to say that the union will go along with this. You're not going to fight it or challenge it. Well, I mean, we are going to defend our members' rights under the collective agreement, and, uh, you know, we'll see what that looks like in the weeks ahead. But uh, I think the most important thing for people to know is that, you know, in our membership, we believe that in excess of 90% of our members have been vaccinated, and uh, we think that over the next couple of weeks, there will probably be a lot more that get vaccinated. Um, It's really important for workers to, you know, who have not received the vaccine to get their questions answered very quickly. They need to seek out credible sources of information like their family doctor and uh, make that decision to get vaccinated because we have staffing shortages and it's really important to kind of maintain those workers in our system. Okay, when you say that you'll defend your members' rights under the, the collective agreement that's in place, what does the contract say about mandatory vaccinations, if anything? Well, there's a range of contracts that cover healthcare workers, and most of them have uh, a requirement that the employer may require uh, vaccinations. You know, employers have to... Uh, you know, try and accommodate workers who have uh, bona fide medical conditions or a charter protected right like a religious belief. Uh, Dr. Henry has put in place a mechanism to deal with those kind of issues, and we think those exemptions will be pretty narrow. I think the important thing for workers to do right now is to really collect their thoughts about what is their hesitancy about the vaccine and try and get their questions answered. Uh, There's not much time to make that decision now. What if you have uh, a hospital worker who does not want to take the vaccine because they believe it's unsafe or they think it's experimental? I mean, it's not based on a a medical condition or a religious conviction they're just they're basically anti-vax they don't want to take the vaccine do they have any protections under the union contract uh well well we'd have to sort of assess the grievance if they file a grievance but uh, there is a very narrow group of workers who are eligible yeah. for exemptions to a vaccine mandate and uh You know, those would basically be folks who have a bona fide medical condition or a religious belief that's protected by the charter. So it would be a very narrow group of members who will be successful in challenging us. Speaking to Mike Old, he's a spokesperson for the Hospital Employees Union about mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers just announced in B.C. Uh, I mentioned earlier that on the show, Mike, that the B.C. Nurses Union has put out a statement saying they're opposed to this measure by the government. They are concerned that they could lose a lot of frontline nurses staff, unvaccinated nurses who may lose their job. What do you think about your your colleagues there in the nurses union and the position they've taken there? 
Well, you know, I, I, th- I think it's true, and we've been raising this since the announcement on August 12th when, when they first proposed that they would do this, that it's, you know, there is a risk to the strategy. We have very tight staffing in the healthcare system, even before COVID hit. Uh, workers in the sector are really at the end of their ropes. We did some polling in June that showed that uh, one out of four of our members um, you know, is likely to consider leaving the healthcare system in the next two years because of the stress and strain of working through COVID. So, um, you know, I think we should all be concerned about whether there are some parts of the province where on October 12th in long-term care and October 26th and the rest of the healthcare system where we find ourselves very short of staff. So that is a, that, that is a real concern. But I think it's important that... You know, we acknowledge the courage and commitment of these healthcare workers through the last 18 months, and we really support and encourage them to remain in the healthcare workforce, that they get this information and that they get the vaccine. Okay, you mentioned that it's it's estimated that, what, 90% of healthcare workers are vaccinated? Is that correct? Well, we, we estimate that more than 90% of HEU members are vaccinated. I don't have any statistics for the other unions. But what I would say is that uh, the provincial health officer has been collecting this data. So um, by September 8th, all health employers uh, were required to upload information to a public health portal. So they are in a position to actually say what the rates of vaccination are at a site level. And that will give us a really good indication of what kind of trouble we might be in on October 12th in the long-term care system and, uh, you know, in the future, what, what's going to happen in our acute care and our community health system. Right, right. So the health authorities have been collecting this data, as you mentioned, so they have been asking healthcare workers to disclose their vaccination status, right? Yeah, so yeah. up to September 8th, long-term care and assisted living uh, site operators have been required to upload this information. Right. So they should have a very good sense now of what's going to be happening on October 12th because the last day for workers in long-term care and assisted living to get their first vaccine dose and make the October 12th deadline was yesterday. So they'll have a very good sense today of what they're right. facing in a couple of weeks. Right. So they know who's vaccinated and who who is not vaccinated. And presumably the people who are not vaccinated, if they don't have that that valid ex- narrow exemption that you described, they will those people will be out of a job. They'll be laid off. Correct? Well, you know, we, we have been pushing health employers and government for answers around what exactly happens to a worker if they are unvaccinated on the deadline date. And, you know, yesterday for the first time in the briefing, we heard Dr. Henry suggest that they may be put on an unpaid leave. Uh, we know that some employers... Yeah, without pay. They will... Yeah, that's right. And yeah. uh, we some employers have said that they will take actions up to and including dismissal. Yeah. Uh, you know, we think that employers have to look at all the options for these workers because, uh, you know, eventually they may want them back in the healthcare system. So, what are you what are you suggesting there? They sh- they should receive a severance or something? Or well, I think we want we want to have that discussion, and we've been yeah. promised that discussion, and we've yet to really have it. So, we want to explore all the options for what workers if, who may not let, be vaccinated. Let's say it's ninety percent vaccinated across the healthcare system, roughly. We we don't know the precise number, but let's say that's what we're looking at. That ten percent are unvaccinated and potentially will be out of out of out of work. What kind of impact would that have on the continuing function of the healthcare system? 
if they lose, let's say, 5 to 10% of the workforce because they're not vaccinated? Well, that, that, would be, that would be a healthcare crisis, but I think I would suggest that the number is going to be, you know, at the end of the day, it'll be much smaller than that. Yeah. Um, you know, there are, there are also, it's important to note uh, from yesterday's briefing that the, the, the new extension of the vaccine requirement may not apply to kind of sites where there is no patient care delivered. So say a supply warehouse or a corporate office. So there would be some healthcare workers who may not need to uh, comply with this vaccine requirement. And could they potentially be transferred? Let's say if they don't want to take the vaccine, they could be transferred to a site where maybe they don't need to be vaccinated. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's, it's, impo- it's important for health employers to explore all options to try and sort of protect their investment and skilled, yeah. experienced healthcare workers. Okay, we're watching it closely. Mike, thank you for coming on today to talk about it. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for the opportunity, Mike. Good morning.